As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome along to today's show. I'm Justin Briley, Premier's Theology and Apologetics Editor. And as always, the show brought to you by Premier, SBCK and NT Wright Online. And bringing you the thought and theology of New Testament scholar, former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright. Just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has responded so far to our Compassion Sponsorship Appeal. You may remember that uh, several episodes ago, Tom was in conversation with Richmond Wandera, a pastor in Uganda, talking about Christianity in Africa, some of the uh, challenges and opportunities that are represented there, and about Richmond's own story as a compassion child who was brought out of poverty because of a compassion sponsor, and the amazing effect that's had on his life and his ability to do the work of the kingdom Um, well we asked you to get behind this sponsorship campaign we wanted to see a hundred children sponsored through the podcast through the ask nt write anything podcast and um, we've seen over 70 children sponsored so far which is amazing thank you so much to all those who have responded on the back of that show that tom did with richmond still opportunity to do that if you'd like to uh, make a difference uh, and sponsor a child through the show with this partnership with compassion you can do that by visiting compassion.com forward slash justin and anybody who does that from the u.s specifically also gets a free copy of my book unbelievable why after 10 years of talking with atheists i'm still a christian again that's compassion.com forward slash justin and we're hoping to get 100 children sponsored uh, wouldn't that be brilliant to see 100 children sponsored Well, today and next week here on the podcast, we're bringing you something different. N.T. Wright's opening address and Q&A from Unbelievable, the conference that took place in May this year. And Tom was speaking on the subject, how to retell the Jesus story to a world that's forgotten it. Now, you can actually get all of Tom's teaching from the conference via our digital download of it. And again, you can find the link with today's podcast and at our show page, askntright.com that's also the place to go to sign up for our fortnightly newsletter if you do that you'll also receive the link to ask a question of tom yourself we'll also got some uh, fresh shows with tom coming your way soon so do feel free to send those questions in make sure you're registered again at askntright.com and finally one more great reason to be on our mailing list is that you'll be in the draw for one of these five signed copies of tom's recent book broken signposts how christianity makes sense of the world and we're going to draw the winners in september so get yourself signed up now again it's askntwrite.com the link is with today's show now over to tom from unbelievable the conference
I've been asked to speak about how to tell the greatest story ever told. In other words, the story, of course, of Jesus himself. Now, at one level, that sounds quite easy. We know the line. Jesus goes about announcing the kingdom of God. He is crucified. He is raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven and sends his spirit on his... But wait a minute. We've already said both far too much and far too little. This story makes no sense in our world. And it made no sense in the first century world either. Foolishness to the Greeks, said St. Paul, and a scandal to the Jews. It didn't fit. The problems we today have with telling this story are not, despite what some think, the result of any supposed modern or scientific worldview. Cicero and Seneca knew just as well as we do that dead people do not ordinarily get bodily raised. And The going to heaven story always seemed to be making Jesus into some sort of a primitive spaceman. It would raise eyebrows in the first century where they told stories like that about emperors being divinized. Not many people actually believed in it, but it was useful politically and so on. But anyway, what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? In other words, if this is the greatest story ever told, it is also a patchwork of puzzles. I was once on a train going to Canterbury to do a lecture about Jesus in his historical context. I was reading a new book with the word Jesus prominently on its cover. Opposite me was a young Japanese man who spoke very little English. Halfway through the journey, he plucked up courage and said, Is book about Jesus? Uh, Yes, I said, it is indeed. You tell me about Jesus? He asked, and at that point the train stopped in an intermediate station and a man who'd been sitting beside me got up to get out and he glanced round sympathetically and said, have fun. The young man I discovered had been in England for just one day. He knew nothing whatever, literally nothing, about Christianity, but he had seen people going into a big building and had followed them. And there was music and talking and then... Everyone went up to the front and was given a piece of bread and a sip of wine. And he had joined them. And he kept hearing the word Jesus. And he had no idea what it was all about. Where would you start? I realised at once that there was a vast gap between the sort of thing I was planning to say in my lecture that evening and the sort of thing that I might say slowly and in very basic English to this young man. My intended evening audience were cathedral and city and university folk. I could assume a great deal. My fresh proposals that I had were trying to challenge their existing interpretation of the well-known story. My Japanese friend knew nothing about Jesus, the Gospels, Christianity, actually about ancient history as a whole. He'd never heard of the Jews or of Israel. He had never heard of crucifixion. Nor did he seem to have any idea about God or a God or a supreme being or a creator. (laughs) But for the story of Jesus to make the sense it's supposed to make, ideally, you should say something about all of the above. The rest of the day, I'm sorry to say, passed in a blur. And the only thing I now remember of our conversation is that I tried to keep it desperately simple. And I ended up drawing a picture of a cross. And then I even tried, and I'm not an artist, to draw a picture of an empty tomb. I have no idea what he made of it because I had to get out at a certain point. I think, I hope, I have a dim memory 
that I tried to explain that the world was in a mess, but that the God who had made the world had come in person to deal with the mess, and that this person, Jesus, was alive and at work and was looking for new friends whose lives he could transform so that they could join in with his world healing project. And as I look back, I think, was that already far too much? It probably was, but it was all I could do at the time. Now, obviously, not many of us will face that kind of challenge on a regular basis. But my case to you today is that trying to tell the story of Jesus in today's Western culture offers challenges which are equally daunting precisely because they're usually invisible. It isn't that people in our world know nothing. They know, or they think they know, the wrong things. The story of Jesus has so often been mistold or improperly contextualized, with its emphases skewed and key elements omitted, that a casual mention of Jesus is likely to give off all sorts of misleading impressions, a mishmash of memories from Sunday school or Christmas carols or half-forgotten school assemblies. And there's an extra dimension we have to factor in here. When we tell the story of Jesus, we are not just describing someone who lived a long time ago, though we do need to speak clearly about Jesus as a solid and knowable figure of history. We can't just make him up. But Jesus is also alive right now, present though invisible, wanting us to introduce him to new friends. Telling the greatest story of all time isn't, in other words, simply of antiquarian interest. This is both a scary responsibility and a sigh of relief. The responsibility, oh my goodness, we don't want to misrepresent Jesus or to give a wrong impression, but the sigh of relief because when you introduce a friend to somebody else, even if you're nervous and stumble and stammer and forget some key points, that may not ultimately matter because the friend can pick it up from there and establish their own new relationship. Now, with Jesus, of course, that process is always more mysterious. But one way of thinking about it is this. Just as in many traditions, including my own, the church congregation on a Sunday morning stands up for the reading of the gospel story to welcome into their midst the one of whom we speak. So with every attempt to tell the greatest story ever told, we should at least be prayerfully aware that the Jesus we're talking about is well able to take the relationship forward from that point and gradually to sort out the muddles we may have left lying around. The greatest story ever told is, after all, a love story. But none of that absolves us from trying to get the story right. And that's a lot harder than it should be. Western culture as a whole, including Western Christianity, often has regularly got things upside down and inside out. There are three areas, very briefly, where this is so. First is the kingdom of God. Our culture has assumed that the purpose of Christianity, the meaning of the story of Jesus, is to enable people to go to heaven when they die. But that's the teaching of Plato and his followers, not of the first Christians. No, Jesus was going around announcing that this was the time for God to become king on earth as in heaven. 
Jesus was heir to a long tradition in Israel's scriptures, promising that one day God would come back in power to rescue and heal and transform and remake his world, flooding it with his presence and his glory. And Jesus was doing, close up and personal, all sorts of things that showed what that might mean. The hungry fed, the sick healed, outcasts invited to a party, and so on. That's what the great story is all about, the rescue and healing of creation, starting perhaps with human beings right there. You see, God the Creator didn't make his world as a kind of testing ground or examination room to see if any of his funny human creatures would qualify to go and live with him somewhere else, creating a problem, namely sin, which he then had to solve. No, God made a world in order to come and live there himself with his human creatures. The greatest story ever told is about God doing just that in person. In the scriptures, God promised that he would rule the world wisely, restoratively, through the coming king, the Davidic Messiah, ridding the world of evil in order to flood it instead with his own glory. And the New Testament declares that that's what happened in and with Jesus. So if your telling of the great story doesn't end up with Jesus as, in some sense, Israel's Messiah, and therefore the world's true and healing Lord, we're not getting it right yet. This, by the way, has inescapable political connections and connotations, as it did in Jesus' day. The going-to-heaven message often doesn't, which is no doubt one reason why it's been so popular. But this points to the second area in which our culture lets us down badly. When we tell the greatest story ever told, sooner or later we're going to talk about Jesus and God and was Jesus God incarnate and all that. The question is the relationship between God and the world, with the story of Jesus standing at that vital interface. People in our culture who hear the word God usually assume that such a being, if he exists at all, is a long way away, unconcerned almost by definition with human beings and with our life. That is actually the ancient philosophy of Epicureanism in modern dress. But if you start there, as most people do today, with a God up there somewhere and the rest of us down here, and then if you say that Jesus was in some sense God incarnate, it inevitably sounds as though Jesus was a divine being who touched our world only at a tangent or skimmed over it with his feet barely grazing the turf. Or then, when people discover that Jesus actually was a real-life flesh-and-blood human being, They say, well, forget that God business. Jesus was obviously a great moral teacher or an exemplary human being and so on. The idea of his being divine must have been a later invention. But this familiar either or ignores the fact that in Jesus' Jewish worldview, and it isn't about an ancient versus a modern worldview, it's about that original Jewish worldview against the philosophical worldviews of the culture then and now, In that Jewish worldview, God and the world related to one another quite differently from the model that we have in our modern Western minds. 
Because in Jesus' Jewish worldview, the God of Israel was very much alive. Puzzling, yes, challenging, of course, not to be pinned down, but living and active. And the Jews understood the Jerusalem temple to be the place where God's world and ours overlapped and interlocked. God himself was, of course, vastly greater than the whole world, heaven and earth included. But God had promised Israel that he would come in powerful, mysterious presence to dwell in the temple. So when you went to the temple, it wasn't as if you were in heaven. You were there. You were in heaven. God the creator made a world which he wanted to be his eventual home. And the temple was the advance signpost towards that goal. And the story of Jesus, the greatest story which we are struggling to tell, finds its focus and climax precisely in his confrontation with the temple. Jesus was speaking and acting all along as if he were the temple in person, so that when he came to Jerusalem, the place simply wasn't big enough for them both together. We find it hard to tell his story, partly because we are thinking of us going to heaven instead of thinking of God coming to live with us, and partly because, honestly, our idea of God is too high and dry, too static, too philosophical. In particular, we have forgotten that God made humans in his own image, so that if God was going to come and dwell within his world... A human being was, in that sense, the most natural, the most appropriate creature for him to become. Thus, telling the great story truthfully and faithfully demands that we, the storytellers, allow the figure of whom we speak to reshape our very image of God himself and our understanding of how God relates to and acts within his world. And that's enormously challenging, not least for devout practicing Christians in our culture. So my first problem was to do with the meaning of the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. My second is the larger question of the relation of God and the world. And the third problem, more briefly, is that it is always necessarily difficult to tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. We tend to divide up the narrative. First, Jesus goes around healing and teaching. Then he dies on the cross to deal with our sins. And then he is raised from the dead and so on, as though these are quite discrete events. But these different parts are inseparable. They mesh closely together in mutual explanatory holes. The cross was the climax of Jesus' kingdom-bringing work, overcoming the power of evil which stood in the way of God's ultimate purposes. And the resurrection wasn't just the happy ending after the horror of the cross. Jesus' risen body is the beginning of God's new creation, establishing Jesus as the world's rightful sovereign, working now by his spirit through his followers to bring true signs of God's new world to birth on earth as in heaven, pointing ahead to the time when God's ultimate intention will be completed at Jesus' return. Now, even if we grasp all that, Jesus' death and resurrection remain vast and majestic and disturbing. I don't think we ever reach the point where, so to speak, we know how to do this bit and can just rattle it off. 
the story itself has to go on shaping and challenging us, even as we are struggling to tell it. It will regularly reduce us, thank God, to prayer and humility. The basics are basic. This is what happened. But the full meaning is inexhaustible, as you would expect from the greatest story ever told. So there are three challenges as we think about telling this story in today's world. It's one thing, as with my Japanese friend, to project the story onto a totally blank canvas. Jolly difficult, too. It is, if anything, even harder when our hearers assume that they know how the story should work, but they're actually looking at it wrong. But in closing, let me say something about the resonating chamber within which this story has to be told. The church, indwelt by Jesus' spirit, is meant to be the community in which telling this story this way makes utter and compelling sense because the church is living that kingdom message, that new creation message, that overcoming of evil message, that God in our midst message. The church, in whatever form it takes, must therefore be a community that works and prays for God's kingdom, for God's justice on earth as in heaven. Likewise, the church must foster beauty, learning to see through the lenses of art or music or dance or drama or whatever, uh, that uh, 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 to look the world's darkness in the face and to know that it has been overcome. If the storytelling community isn't bothered, about justice or beauty, why should anyone believe the true story of Jesus? But when Jesus' followers are really following him, then it makes sense to tell the story, to introduce others to the one whom we are following, even if, like the disciples at the time, we often get muddled and trip over our own feet as we try to do so. But this is the real challenge, how to be the people who, when we tell the greatest story ever told, can tell it compellingly, because as you look around at the community, you can see that it's making sense. Now, of course, Jesus himself remains sovereign over all our storytelling. We do not, thank God, have to get it all right before God can work powerfully by his spirit to open people's eyes to Jesus and to call them to him in repentance and faith and discipleship. But just because God is the ultimate storyteller, that doesn't mean that we don't have to work hard to get it right. Part of the point is that God wants his people to grow up, to take responsibility, to become not just storytellers, but story livers, shaped afresh by the story we tell, celebrating and anticipating God's kingdom on earth as in heaven. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I I really love the way that Tom summarises the evangelistic task in that opening talk from our unbelievable conference this year. And next week, you'll hear the questions that came in from our audience all over the world who were watching. Now, if you'd like the full digital download of this conference and all of Tom's sessions and teaching across the whole day, you can find the link 
at our webpage, askntright.com. And that link is there with today's show. And if you sign up there for our newsletter and to ask a question yourself, you'll also be entered into the prize draw for one of five signed copies of Tom's book, Broken Signposts. Again, that's askntright.com. The link is with today's show. See you next time.